I think part of what, Galat- what makes Galatians such a fascinating book is just to notice how Paul has basically taken, uh, we could say, an incendiary bomb to basically everything that the Judaizers were proposing and preaching. So much so that all of their so-called doctrines and teachings, now uh, even as we are just at the midway point through chapter number 3, they've been completely detonated and eradicated. It's almost as if Paul keeps hearing things that they're saying, hearing things that they are promoting, and he's saying, wrong. And let me show you why. And continually, what Paul is going to do, even here this morning, is he's taking people who should know better about the word back to the word to show them that this paradigm that sinners are justified by grace through faith has been the only way in which sinners have been justified from the very beginning. It's never changed. It's, it's never wavered. There's been no, no, some new sort of fangled way by which sinners are made right with God. Uh, the right standing for sinners has always been bound up in the word of God's promise. That's getting a little bit ahead of myself. But regardless, as Paul is, is just taking dynamite after dynamite to all of the things that the Judaizers were clinging to and clutching to, you better believe that Paul has not yet run out of dynamite. And in fact, in, in some sort of way, we could say that he's just getting started. And I don't think it's, and this is just conjecture. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's because Paul liked to ruffle feathers. Maybe he did. Maybe there was a small part of Paul that really liked to see people get uncomfortable. He liked to stir the pot. Maybe there was a little bit of that. But I think it was more of the fact that if the truth of the gospel is going to ruffle your feathers, then Paul would have just said, okay, so be it. Take it up with God. I mean, I don't know what you want me to say. I'm just his apostle. Paul was not about to kowtow to anyone who found offense with the preaching, with the insistence that sinners are justified because of Christ crucified. Remember, as we talked about several weeks ago, that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, specifically and uniquely called to preach the message of Jesus Christ. And he's not about to... Recoil or shy away or withdraw from that message simply because a group of legalistic Jews are getting all flustered by what he was saying. You can imagine Paul. This is, I like to imagine Paul's sort of frustration kind of coming out in his words, in his, in his demeanor sometimes. You can imagine Paul saying, so you, you're getting in a tizzy. Am I preaching of the gospel? What do you want me to do about it? And by the way, if you're already getting flummoxed, he might have said. If you're already getting annoyed by what I've already just said, just wait till you have to hear what I have to say next. Because indeed, our text this morning contains what we might say is the true atom bomb, so to speak, to all of what the Judaizers were holding dear. As Paul's already established, we looked at this. Justification, right standing is by faith. Galatians 2.16. It's not by works of the law. It's by faith in Christ. And then he has proceeded to send a few heads spinning by tying that message of justification by faith to none other than good old father Abraham himself. The patriarch of all of Israel. 
This is, we could say, to, uh, this is Paul's kill shot, his coup de grace, so to speak. That, yes, the Bible has always counted Abraham's righteousness, not according to what he has done, but according to what he has believed. Again, Galatians 3.6, that monumental verse, he's quoting from Genesis 15.6, that Abraham believed God, and what? And it was counted to him as righteousness. This is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the point that he's been striving to make for now three and a half chapters. And as if all of that weren't already controversial enough, he's going to step on even a few more toes with what he says next. Look at verse number seven. Because right on the heels of tying justification by faith to none other than Abraham, notice what he says. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, The gospel, or excuse me, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's words here are truly some of the most groundbreaking and earth-shattering, perhaps, in all of this letter of Galatians, which is saying something. Because, did you catch what he's just said? That Abraham's sons, his true sons, are those, as he says, are those of faith. Now, you and I are perhaps not as rattled as we should be by what he has just said. But make no mistake, as Paul has just written this, and perhaps this was read in a public reading at a church or a congregation, not only has Paul just blown uh, not a few minds, but he's also just made several enemies at the same time. Because in short, what he has just declared is that if you want to be a son of Abraham, that is if you want to be an inheritor of all of the blessings that were made to Father Abraham back in Genesis, the only requirement, the only determining factor is what? Faith. Notably, what's left out is what? Bloodline. Heritage. Who your parents were, what your family tree looks like, or even your adherence to the law. The only determining factor uh, on whether or not you are a son or daughter of Abraham is if you, like Abraham, receive and believe the promise of God by faith. And as we read in verse number 14, this is true even for Gentiles. Notice what he says. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul is making all of these assertions about God's family of promise, so to speak. The the family of Abraham. And he's tying them all to faith. He's tying them all to this open-handed reception of all of these promises that God is making. But of course, he doesn't just leave these assertions to sort of hang up in the air. He doesn't leave them alone. Rather, what does he do? He takes the Galatians and the Judaizers back to the word of God and shows them that this has always been true. And he begins 
with an illustration. Again, verse number 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. He begins with an illustration that many of us would likely be familiar with. When you see covenant here, think of perhaps a last will and testament, so to speak, that's put into place and even enacted, executed, so to speak, when someone passes away. Will, of course, is a binding arrangement for how all of the deceased person's possessions and properties will be shared among those who are listed as the inheritors. And Paul is making the case that even when it comes to covenants or wills that are made by human men or human women, there was no annulling, there was no adding to them once they were endorsed, once they're ratified, once that will is executed upon the deceased person's death. There's no changing that will. No one in their right mind would try to go about changing a will once it has been put into effect, once it's been executed. And he's making the same point regarding God's will. As, 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 as unthinkable as it is, that a human will could be changed, could be altered, that someone could slide in and make a little amendment to a will once the, 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 the person who made the will has passed, so it is with God's will. So it is with the will that he has promised specifically to Abraham. It is fixed. It is unchangeable. God's words to Abraham, as he has just said, were words of promise. They were given with no conditions, no strings attached, so to speak. And in fact, let me show you. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Keep your finger in Galatians. Go back with Genesis 12. We've looked at a few of these, but I want you to see... These instances of promise to Father Abraham. Good old Father Abraham. And notice how the the promise is worded to him in each of these instances. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Turn over a page to chapter 15. Look at verse 5. Genesis fifteen five, And he brought, that is God brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Flip the page one more time. Genesis 17. Look at verse 3. Genesis 17, verse 3. Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring. And after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Did you notice the language in each of those passages? God's language of promise, if you will, is a language of I will. There were no thou shalts or thou shalt nots. In each of those passages. Why? Because they, this is a promise. There are no conditions to the promise. Or else the promise would not be a promise at all. That's sort of the, the point Paul makes. Back in Galatians chapter 3. Did you notice that in verse 18? We read it a moment ago. Did you look at what he says? Galatians 3.18. For if the inheritance comes by the law. It, is no longer, it, is, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise, by a statement of, I will do this for you. Not thou shalt meet up to all of these standards before I will make this promise good for you. No, it is a promise that is given unilaterally for the good of Abraham and all of his offspring. It wasn't demanded to do something in order to make this promise true, in order to make this promise happen. God gives him this word of promise. And all he's asked to do, so to speak, is believe. And of course, that's what he does. He believes. And as we've already looked at, he was, it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the way the promise works. And uh, lest you think that this is just a lot of Old Testament history that doesn't really apply to us. Paul is going to do something quite amazing in verses 16 and 17. Notice what he does. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham. He's asserting that fact. Yes, these are Old Testament promises. And to all of his offspring. It does not say, notice what he does. And to offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one, quote, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. Paul is doing some amazing things in a short amount of time here in just these two verses. Number one, he's identifying that the promise, the ultimate idea of the promise given to Abraham is none other than the person of Christ. Yes, he's going to use that term for offspring uh, uh, several times throughout the rest of this chapter. And many times it can refer to children, to seed, to offspring, as you might expect. Ones that come after you, your lineage, so to speak. Yes, it means all of Abraham's lineage. But by the same token, it also has a dual meaning to it. Because it's not just referring to Abraham's sons and Abraham's grandsons and great-grandsons and so on and so forth. As Paul has just amazingly made this point, this offspring that he's just quoted is referring to the true and better offspring of Abraham. Which is none other than Jesus. The Christ. The Son of God. By whom and through whom all the nations will be blessed. Remember, back when we read all those promises, he's saying, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Through whom all the nations will be blessed. Who is the one that does that? Who is the one that is able to bless all of the nations? It's Christ. It's Jesus. This is the amazing way that you and I are invited to read the scriptures, by the way. 
Paul does not do anything totally out of the ordinary. If you remember, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is making a similar covenant to the king David. And he tells him about his son. Remember, if you, if you remember that chapter, God is giving David a promise that the son that comes after him, he's going to be the one to build him a house. And that has two meanings to it, doesn't it? It refers to Solomon, because Solomon is going to be the one that actually builds the temple. But also more truly and more consequentially, it's referring to who? It's referring to Jesus, the offspring, the true and better offspring of David, the true and better offspring of Abraham, who, yes, is going to build an everlasting house, not just for David and not just for Solomon, but for all of the people of God, including the people of Abraham. Amazing truth that Paul has just revealed. And this is, by the way, when he says back in verse number 8 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. How can he say that? He can say that because what was bound up in the promise that God gave to Abraham was nothing but the person of Christ. The ultimate Identification of the promise is the person of Jesus. But also what Paul does here in these two verses is he sort of pulls the veil back, so to speak, on the fundamental error that all of these Judaizers were making. Because again, as he's just talked about, he's talked about wills and covenants. And he's talking about the fact that human wills can't be changed. He's basically saying that what the Judaizers were doing by inserting law into what God has promised... They're trying to change the will after it's already been ratified. They're trying to change God's promise. Again, look at verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a, co- a covenant previously ratified <coughs> by God so as to make the promise void. By insisting... That a sinner's justification, that a sinner's right standing with God was contingent on them believing but also doing. On It was a matter of faith plus works. That what were they doing? They were effectively voiding the promise altogether. They were trying to render it useless. That's, a, that's exactly what that word void means. They were trying to render it powerless. You can think of a balloon that deflates. If the promise is a balloon, them uh, trying to insert law into what has already been given, it's like taking a needle to the balloon. It just deflates. They're deflating the promise by trying to insert works into what God has already covenanted in terms of what God has already willed. All of the requirements that they were adding. Remember when they came, first of all, in in Acts chapter 15, they were preaching this message of you have to be circumcised. And that just, not just that act of circumcision, but that's a stand-in for anything that man might do. All of those requirements that they were adding, they were just deflating the promise. They were nullifying grace, as Paul has already suggested. And they were turning the promise into a law, as we already looked at in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. You're ruining the gift. You're ruining what God has promised and willed. By trying to insert all of your amendments, by trying to insert all of your extra measures, by trying to add all of these things to it, you're sucking all of the life and power out of the gospel. And here Paul is just making this tremendous statement. Because again, in verse 17, he's hinted at this idea that the law comes afterwards. 
God's promise was originally made to Abraham. Which again, Paul has just suggested, but also proved that it's, it's encapsulated and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And this promise that was given to Abraham, that was given to the patriarch, happened well before the law, 430 years before that. But even then, what he's going to say is that the law, when it's established on the slopes of Mount Sinai, when God is giving that law to the people of Israel, uh, God was not, even in that moment, altering what he had previously promised. He wasn't annulling what he had previously willed. When God sits with Moses and records all of the laws that the people of God were, were supposed to follow, that wasn't God's way of saying, like a certain dark lord of the Sith from Star Wars, I'm changing the deal, pray I don't change it any further. <laughs> the Star Wars reference, if you didn't get that, sorry. But that's not, that's not what God's doing. He's not altering a deal that he's previously made by giving a law. The law is not God's amendment to the promise, to the gospel. Nor is the law an instance of God changing his mind on how to deal with sinners. From, from previously when Abraham was around, he gave them a promise of grace. To now with Moses, he's going to change that agreement to an agreement that's contingent upon their works and their efforts. That's not what's happening. So then you might be asking the question, what's the point of the law? If the law, as Paul has already established, we are not justified by works of the law. That's never what the law has been intended to do. That's not ever been in the cards in terms of what it is supposed to do for us. So what's the point of giving it? What's the point of it? There's, there's a lot of scripture that spends a lot of time detailing the law for the likes of you and me. And sometimes we might think, man, what in the world does this have to do with me? Paul anticipates the same question, by the way. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? What's the point? Well, he tells us. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You see, here, here's what Paul's doing. This is really important and key. The law, Paul is saying, was not given so that people could, could uh, the people of God could earn or, or, or work their way into receiving the promise. That's not what it was for. He's just established that. It wasn't added so that the people of Israel could sort of have a checklist of duties that they could, uh, they could see being done. And then once they're done, that would entitle them to be the inheritors of God's promises. No. As he's just said. The law was added, it was given because of transgressions. You can think about it this way. The law was given in order to reveal just how full of sin we really are. As James says, the law of God is a mirror. That's what the law is. It's a perfect reflection. Not only of God's holiness, perfect righteousness, it's also a reflection of our abject unholiness and wickedness. It shows us for who we really are. That's what the law does. It leaves us exposed. It leaves us stripped bare and forces us to admit that we are a bunch of good-for-nothing sinners. We can never live up to its standard. You think it's this? It's way higher than that. 
And the law, that's what it reveals. It reveals also what we may call the sinfulness of sin. It shows us what sin is. Sin is not just a few bad mistakes. Oops, my bad. A little bit of error on my part. No, as he says, it, it is added for what? Transgressions. Your sins are not just little mistakes. Our sins are violations, and we could even say rebellions against almighty, all-holy God. And in the problem that that creates, we need a solution that makes up for the original problem. If you've ever watched Bob Ross, you know, that painter on your local sort of cable channel, what he say? Happy little accidents. And he turns the little accident into a tree or something like that when he's painting. Unfortunately, it's not that easy for us to change our happy little accidents into something else. And indeed, that's not what our sins are. They're not happy little accidents. They're insurrections against God Almighty, the God who created us. They are rebellions against Him and His holiness. So then we are caught in this horrible chasm Seemingly between faith and works. How do we go about this? Paul anticipates uh, another question in verse 21. Notice what he says. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Or, or is, is that truly what's going on? Uh, is, is there, what, what do we do here? It seems, you're, you're telling me one way, but then you're telling me it's not that way. So what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to think about this? <laughs> By insisting that the obedience to the law is preceding sort of anyone's inheritance of the promise. What the Judaizers were doing is they were essentially driving a wedge between the God of the law and the God of the promise. As if they're two different entities. And Paul, what Paul is going to say is certainly not. Because the God of the promise and the God of the law are one and the same. Verse 20, God is one. See, what Paul is doing, he's getting all of these Galatians and likewise uh, us as well to, to think rightly about what this law is and what God's promise is. And the answer is not to drive a wedge between the two and force people to choose one or the other. I'm a person of the law or I'm a person of the promise. Actually, the answer is to uphold both of them fully. Because, indeed, we have to understand here this morning that it is only as we understand that the law is absolutely fully inflexible, then, and only then will we understand that God's promise, his gospel, is absolutely free and indispensable to our hope. That's what the law is. It's Inflexible. It's unaccommodating, as we've already seen. It has no escape valve. There's no little amendment that has an annulment clause where we can get out of it. The law is restrictive. It's strangling. It's a force that imprisons us. As he says, look at verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The bulk of what the God's word is going to reveal and show is that, yes, everyone, they're caught, they're imprisoned, they are captives under sin, and they can't get out of that. And we're captive to this idea. Isn't it fascinating? That even though Paul is 
has been everywhere beating into our heads that we are not justified by works of the law, what is our automatic default mode? That that's how we're justified. (laughs) And we fall back into that. Isn't it true? That as many times as we can hear the gospel, we all sometimes, many times, oftentimes, fall back into thinking, man, if I could only just be... And we're automatically right there. Back thinking that it's dependent upon us. It brings us back to that that statement that is attributed to Luther, who knows who really said it, but that we need the gospel every day. Why? Because we forget it every day. We are captive to this idea that our right standing with God is a matter of just do this, even though we can never live up to that standard. As he says in verse number 23, look at Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, notice what he says, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. He's getting them to see that this is where we are. We are imprisoned by this force called the law of God, as he calls it in verse number 24. It is our guardian. Notice verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Or if you have a good old King James, our schoolmaster is that which ensures us that we are obeying, that we're towing the line. The law was like as if you had a tutor or an instructor always around you. And whenever you even thought or hinted at doing something outside of God's holiness, the law was there to switch you and make sure that you knew that you were going outside of bounds. It was a force of reminding us that the holiness of God doesn't allow for even the slightest pinky toe to fall outside of the line. That's what the law reminds us. And it's only when we understand the law in this way, that's when it's done its job. Step back for a minute. Because you understand here that this, this speaks directly to what the Judaizers were doing. They were making the law what? They were making it keepable. If you just do X, Y, and Z, then you can earn the title of justified and saved. And Paul is saying, you've, you've missed it. You've missed the point. You've missed what all of this was supposed to do and instill in us. Because God's law is absolutely inflexible. It is unaccommodating. It is uncompromising. And it doesn't allow for even the slightest hint of failure. Which therefore makes what God has already given us in the gospel, the promise of his son, absolutely indispensable. Because again, see, go back to verse 19. Because every time Paul has just amplified the law and making it into this abject impossibility, what he has likewise done is he's paved the way for our only hope to be our only hope, Jesus Christ. Notice again, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Notice this. Until the offspring should come. The offspring, definite article, should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Notice verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, notice, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, 
The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Who is the offspring that should come? Who is the faith that should come to us? It's Christ. This person of Jesus he is the one, uh, not only about whom this promise has been made, he is its focus, he is its fulfillment. He is the one who brings all of it into fruition. And the point is, he's wanting us to see that the point of the law is to drive us into the dust. So that we have to see, and that we're forced to cry out as we're lying flat on our backs, that we cannot do it. The law is there so that in order that there would be no other avenue of hope except through Christ. The one through whom this promise was given in the first place. The point of the law is to show us that we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right. We can't inherit the promise by what we do. We're forced to give up. And in that giving up, that's exactly when the word of the gospel, the word of the promise has those words. What? As we read from Genesis, I will. Or for you and I, I have done it already. You see, the promise that God gave Abraham as we've already established, finds its fulfillment in none other than the person of Jesus. And he comes declaring the gospel to us. And what is the good news at the heart of the gospel? Well, think about when Jesus is first on the scene in his ministry and he preaches from Luke chapter 4. And actually, in Luke chapter 4, he's preaching. And what is he referencing? He's referencing Isaiah chapter 61. And what does Isaiah 61 say? Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Captives. Those who are imprisoned under the law. Jesus is announcing, these are exactly whom I have come to set free. To release from their chains of sin and death and darkness. He's the one who has come to open those prison doors. By yes, himself being the one put into bonds for us. By his death under the law. He frees us from the law and his curse. Now those who believe are no longer slaves. They're no longer slaves under sin. Who are we? We are sons of God. Daughters of God who've been adopted and have been brought in to the family of Abraham. As he's going to say, they are heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, look at verse 25. This is just awesome. So he's just said that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so he's making the assumption now that we are justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The schoolmaster has been sent home. The prison warden is relieved of his duty. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, you are not captives. You are all sons through faith.
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. These are indeed the explosive consequences of the gospel of Christ crucified. Because... It is Christ alone, again, who brings to fruition all of those promises originally made to Abraham. And when we, when we have been sufficiently devastated and defeated by the law, and we cry out for the deliverance that only comes through Jesus and his death, then we too, as he's just established, we are made to inherit the exact same promise. As he says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's, heirs according to the promise. Remember that children's song that's banned in almost every junior church setting I know of? That Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. And you sing it over and over and over again. Maybe you didn't sing that in Sunday school. Maybe you had a good Sunday school teacher who banned that song. I didn't. I had a junior church teacher that let us sing that endlessly on repeat. And it gets crazier and crazier, you know. But maybe there's some truth to that silly little song. That Father Abraham had many sons. And yes, this morning you could say, I am one of them and so are you. Not because you've done something. Not because you've met a certain standard of of morality or purity or some certain sort of measure. You've You've not lived up to the bar of what it means to inherit the promise. Because again, what has he already established? If that were the case, we'd be changing what God's promises were. You are a son or a daughter of Abraham this morning through faith. Mind-blowing statement for Jews. And yes, even here this morning we could say, yes, Gentile sinners, we have been embraced as the offspring of Abraham because of Christ. Through faith, we've put on Christ. Going back to Isaiah 61, verse 10, this awesome verse, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That essentially is the beautiful picture of what Paul is referencing. It is Jesus who dresses us in the garments of salvation, in his very own robes of righteousness. And the, own, the point of all of this is that Paul has been striving to show is that going back to reaching back to Father Abraham, what's the only determining factor in this? Faith. Do you believe that this promise is true? All that matters. Is that you who were once a sinner, 
cursed and condemned under the law have now been liberated. You've been set free from that curse by Christ becoming the curse for you. And now, not only is the curse removed, but his righteousness is yours. The promise is yours. My friends, you are forgiven and you are free in Jesus. You're no longer under a guardian. You're no longer a captive. You are no longer imprisoned. This is what it means to be justified. We think of justification as really small. And Paul is trying to show us. It is this wonderfully beautiful doctrine. That encompasses all of these promises. That God bound up in his word. The promise of God cannot be rescinded. It cannot be taken back. It will never be annulled. It will never be altered. This gospel of free justification that is given to us in Jesus is given again. No restrictions, no strings attached. And you might think, oh, Pastor Brad, what are you saying? I'm saying that the promise has no conditions on it. And if you're worried about what people will do in the aftermath of this promise, trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. You see, I think this is the point that is so difficult for us to grasp. So difficult for us to wrap our minds around. This idea that this gospel of justification, right standing with God, it's barrier free. That's hard for us to grasp. Why? Because we like barriers. Maybe you wouldn't think about it in those terms, but I think we like barriers. We like protocols. We like restrictions. We like knowing who belongs and who doesn't. And if you measure up, then you're in. And if you don't measure up, you don't. We like that simplicity. We like that brutality. It's appealing, isn't it? Because then if we pretend or if we figure that we're in, man, doesn't that feel good to have that sense of exclusivity where we belong and we know that they don't? We know that we're in while others are not. You see what Paul is doing here? All of the man-made barriers that we put up, they are completely obliterated by the gospel of Christ crucified. That's what makes this gospel such a scandal. But there are no barriers. As he says, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that these things don't exist. He's just saying they don't matter in terms of whether you're justified or not. It doesn't matter what your race is. What your social status is, what your gender is, what your political affiliation is, what your level of education is, or what your bank account looks like. All of those things that we so often cling to and clutch as human beings that make us who we are, that section us off and and partition us into little cliques or little groups. They just don't matter when it comes to this gospel of justification by faith. Sometimes we, I think, get into this bad habit of thinking that the church is a country club. And it's full of people that have paid their dues. And they're here because of some significant contribution one way or another. I think what the amazing thing that Paul has just proven is that the church is not a country club at all. And that's a, a, a really terrible way of thinking about it. The church of God is a family. 
And just like I am part of the gray family line. Why? Because I have gray blood in me. You this morning are part of the Christian family line, if you will. The Abrahamic family line. Why? Because you have blood covering you. And the same blood that is covering you this morning by faith is covering the person next to you and the person behind you and the person in front of you and the person downstairs, the person down the street, the person that you may not like and they kind of annoy you, the person that you think is a little awkward and weird, the person that you just can't stand, that they have that political view. That person who, yes, is a Michigan Wolverine fan. How dare they? They're covered by the same blood. There's no barriers to this message of free justification. Your right standing with God is unencumbered and unobstructed by all the things we love to put up. You gotta be just like this. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. We've been brought into the family of God by, yes, Christ himself. And now the only message that we have to offer is the same free invitation into God's family. By faith alone. Everyone's invited. No one's cast out. There's nothing that, if I can use this word, irks me more when I see, and I'm not... Referencing this church perhaps. But when you see or hear of churches having specific cliques or groups. And this little group doesn't talk to this little group. But they're still in the same church. And I'm not saying you have to know every single person's name in this auditorium. But I am saying that every single person here is on equal standing in the sight of God. No one's better than the other. doesn't matter all the things that we just listed. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all the same amount of sinners damned to hell if it weren't for this Jesus. And here this morning, that's what we can rejoice in. When we sing, death was arrested, we can sing out in unison. Because that's what Jesus did for every single one of us. No matter what your sin life looks like. (laughs) No matter how dark your past is. No matter how good your present you think is. Jesus declares that we are all desperate for the only hope that he embodies. Is the hope of right standing with him because of what he has done. And now by faith we are brought into the family of God. Praise the Lord.